0: I mean, we spend so much time at making sure that our diets meet your AFCO guidelines for those nutrients. And, you know, something like oxidation derails that. And so you may not have yeah. those um, levels of nutrients at 12 months of shelf life if you've not protected your product um, with, with the right measures um, during formulation. A whole new
1: era of communication in the pet food industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds in the global pet food industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible wilbur ellis nutrition make one call find it all wilbur ellis nutrition your partner for pet ingredients and services ProAmpac is changing the future of sustainable pet food packaging learn more at pets.proampac.com Chemin nutrisurance is your pet food and rendering partner every step of the way trow nutrition the science of ingredients nutrition and blending Welcome to the Pet Food Science Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and all that's working in the pet food industry. Tired of one-size-fits-all solutions that don't quite fit? At Wilbur Ellis, we're bringing custom back to the customer. We know that for your pet food and treats to shine on the shelf, you need to start with the best. After all, even the best recipe is only as good as its ingredients. From nutrition to preservation to blending and bottling, make one call to Wilbur Ellis Nutrition to find it all. We don't sell to you, we work with you. A true partnership to meet your needs. Follow Wilbur Ellis Nutrition on LinkedIn to learn how partnering with a purpose could double the power of your team. Hi
2: everyone and welcome to the Pet Food Science Podcast, where we seek to discuss current research and how it may apply to innovation in the pet and nutrition industries. I'm your host, Julia Pezzali, and today I have the distinct pleasure of speaking with Dr. Melissa Weber on the topic of oxidation of pet foods. Welcome, Melissa, to our podcast. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, me too. We're excited to have having you. And before we dive into the topic of uh, pet food and oxidation, uh, do you mind telling us a little bit of your background and how you ended up in your current position?
0: Yeah, I can. So. I grew up a farm girl in tennessee and so i knew um as i went to college that i wanted to stay rooted in agriculture in in some way shape or form so i did my bachelor's in animal science and i had a wonderful professor who told me you need to get a graduate degree in meat science and you need to go to k-state and i didn't know any better so i just blindly followed his suggestions and packed up my bags from Tennessee um, and completed my graduate work at Kansas State. Um, mm-hmm. After that, I mean, my, my research was very focused on livestock and the impact that feeding livestock has on meat quality from a tenderness and, and color standpoint. So very livestock focused. Um, and so after grad school, I spent several years at Cargill Meat Solutions working in the fresh meat space. Um, unfortunately I was part of a divestment divestment, um, as part of Cargill. I was in the pork business when they divested to JBS and I was faced with making some career decisions. Um, and that's when I made the, the venture into pet food. So I moved back to Tennessee, um, uh, which was great to be back home closer to the farm. And I started working for Mars pet care. In wet product development. And so um, growing up, never envisioned that I would be in a pet food industry, Um, but I haven't looked back. I absolutely love um, the pet food space. I think it's so much more challenging than human food. Um, You know, in, in human food, you're providing one meal and you've got one person to please. But in pet food, it's the complete and balanced nutrition for that animal. And you've got this pet parent and this pet that you're trying to make happy with the food you provide. So I love the challenge and I absolutely love the people in this industry. So as much as I love livestock, I'm excited to be in this
2: pet-focused space now. That's awesome. And I agree that the challenging part is what I I love it as well. You have to think not only on the dog, but also on the Owner and then how the diet looks like, so it's a dynamic triangle that it doesn't matter if it's the most nutritious pet food if they don't buy it, and but it doesn't matter if they buy it is non-nutrition. So you you talked perfectly about how challenging and how great the pet food industry is and how many possibilities we have to grow. Um, and the meat science background I think is great as well and really combines with bad pet food and we need a lot of collaboration with meat science people too they have a lot to teach us and help with our industry too Mm -hmm. so let's talk, uh, talk a little bit about oxidation and pet foods and i think to start this conversation when we think about oxidized pet food what do we mean by oxidation and especially concerning to protein and fat
0: Yeah, so, I mean, oxidation, um, you know, it's these chemical changes that happen in in pet food and rendered products um, and and different fat-like ingredients. And it starts happening as soon as your product is produced. Um, And that's part of why we have to be so intentional with our pet food formulations, um, that it's not just health and wellness, but as we're formulating pet food. Um, it's about shelf life protection as well, because as soon as that product is produced, the chemical and physical changes immediately start happening, and it can degrade the quality um, and the palatability of those pet food products. And so when we talk about oxidation, um, you know, primarily in pet food, it's looking at the fats and the, the oils and those fat-like nutrients. And it's where your polyunsaturated fatty acids and the the presence of oxygen they form these free radicals, um, and then those free radicals will turn into these volatile compounds that create off flavors. And both those free radicals and those volatile compounds, those byproducts that are produced as part of the oxidation of those polyunsaturated fatty acids, have a huge impact on, on the pet and the quality of the product. And so that's really what we're thinking about in pet food um, and it's across the board. I mean, it, it matters on your raw materials that are going into your formulations, um, and then also your your actual pet food formulations um, from from protecting those from oxidation.
2: Yeah, I think talking about the raw materials is important too. Sometimes it doesn't matter if you do a great job in the factory, but if your protein meals they come oxidized already, you already start that chain of oxidation. And I think if uh, You can start with one molecule and then to propagate that oxidation is probably happening really quick, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's that's, that's, that's part of the oxidation problem is it's not reversible. Uh, You know, once you start oxidation, there is that propagation of the the process, so it feeds it. It's like adding um, air to a fire. You're going to make it um, continue and it's going to accelerate that oxidation process. And once something becomes rancid, you can't make it unrancid. And so um, putting those already oxidized raw materials into your pet food formulation are going to immediately start deteriorating the quality and the shelf life of your product.
2: Yeah, so ensuring the quality of those raw materials is very important. And I think we sometimes think a lot about fat quality, but protein meals, they can be highly oxidized and right away. So it's important to they their oxidation right after the rendering and adding the antioxidants there. And always amazes me how like fish meal can be get on fire <laughs> from oxidation. So it's it's insane how it happens and how, as you said, fast and there is not it's not reversible. Right, and it, and it's it's not all products are
0: created equally. Um, the reality is, like you said, some of your fish meals are going to be so much more prone to oxidation. Um, and maybe your your fish diets and pet food, then maybe your beef or your chicken meal. And so it's about that intentionality of knowing what's going into your formulation and making sure you choose the antioxidants and the protection that specifically work for that formulation versus assuming I just use the same antioxidant across the board because those different levels of polyunsaturated fatty acids within that product are going to change the profile. And not just that, it can be you know, other components of the product, such as iron content, um, and some of those pro-oxidants that need to be accounted for in your antioxidant to make sure that you're stopping it before the oxidation process starts.
2: Yeah. So, when you think about the quality of those raw materials, um, what people should be looking at when they buy protein meals or the fat to make sure they're not rancid or they're not oxidized already? Do you have any suggestions or tips on this?
0: Yeah, the, the rendering people won't like hearing me say this, but it's important on the pet food side as you're receiving these raw materials in that you're checking for your PV and your secondary compounds like aldehydes um, or um, ketone type products to, to see how oxidized that product is. Um, you know, PV is a great indicator of your primary oxidation. It's the, the measurement of those peroxides that are immediately formed after the the free radical stage. Um, So that gives you an idea of of where you're at in that um, curve of oxidation. But the secondary compounds, like your aldehydes, are the volatile compounds that are actually creating that off aroma and that off flavor. Um, So I think it's important to test both so that you understand um, where you're at in the oxidation process. Um, and and PV is a bell-shaped curve. So you'll see your PV values go up, but then they come back down as those volatile compounds increase. So if you just test for PV, you may be on the other side of that bell-shaped curve and actually have a rancid product. And so I think it's important, depending on the age of the raw material or the product that you're looking at to test both the primary and the secondary, Um, And then it's always helpful to look at your residual antioxidants. If if you know that a, a product has been treated with an antioxidant, you should know what your inbound measure or percentage should be. How much is that degraded? If it's completely gone, you assume that you're probably starting to see quite a bit of oxidation in that product. And you want to make sure that there's residual tocopherol or rosemary or synthetic compounds in that product to continue protecting it for the rest of shelf life.
2: Yeah. And those are great insights and when the proteins are all not only on the fat uh, or for the fat usually you do all the hides correct And That would be the major one. Mm-hmm. So assuming we got great quality raw materials, are going to process it, maybe extrusion, let's say, on the dry pet food. Um, what is the importance of adding antioxidants to prevent the oxidation of protein and fat over the shelf life? In this case, those dry products that have a low moisture, so they may stay on the shelf for two years. So uh, how Mm -hmm. can oxidation occur over over time and under those shelf life conditions? Right. So, yeah, the, the whole point of adding an antioxidant
0: to a formulation is for that antioxidant to offer itself up to be oxidized so that your polysaturated fats aren't being attacked by those oxygen molecules. And so I'm kind of a dork, but I think of it like in the Hunger Games. Your antioxidants are like, I volunteer as tribute. Um, I'm here to protect you in this oxygen environment. And so your, your antioxidants do. They, they, they bind to that oxygen. Um, they create these stable free radicals. Um, so, that you don't see the oxygen attacking the, the fatty acids um, and causing that breakdown into peroxides and volatile compounds. And so, it's incredibly important to make sure that you're looking at the right antioxidant for your product. Um, and, you know, there's so many things that go into that intentionality. Um, there's, there's the claims that you're wanting to make. I mean, synthetic antioxidants like BHA. BHT, and the Thoxyquin, they're great. They work incredibly well. But the reality is we know consumers are concerned about some of those ingredients. And so, um, you know, what claims are you wanting to make? Do you need to look at synthetic or natural? Um, and then, you know, it's not just about the antioxidant molecules like your or your rosemary. But as I mentioned earlier, what are some of the chelators that can be added to those formulations to Protect the pro-oxidant stage um, because oxygen and heat and metal ions are all things that promote the oxidation process. And so control the oxygen by putting in your antioxidants, control some of those metal ions um, by having things like citric acid or pomegranate-type ingredients that can um, be chelators of those metals to stop the initiation process. Um, so, you know, those are all things to consider as part of the antioxidant. And then as we were talking earlier, it's not across the board. Um, antioxidants aren't the cheapest ingredients out there. And so being intentional on knowing how prone is your product to oxidation. If it's a more stable formulation, you can get away with lower inclusion rates into your kibble formulation. If it's something like a fish diet that's going to be higher prone then making sure you're increasing that PPM of application um, so that you get that 12 or 24-month shelf life that you're looking to achieve in your product.
2: Oh, that's great as well. And there's a lot of other formats of pet food that are becoming more popular over these last uh, couple years. One of those is refrigerated pet food and frozen pet foods. And even though heat is one thing that initiates and propagates oxidation, those refrigerated pet food, they can also be oxidized. And we see a lot of those products, they don't have antioxidants or anything to protect them. Could you talk a little bit more about the importance of antioxidant in those kind of pet foods and how maybe freezing and refrigeration can also, they don't prevent uh, this reaction to occur?
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, as we said, heat definitely likes to accelerate the process but your, your proteins and fats are prone to oxidation anytime there's oxygen present in the environment. So things that are truly vacuum packaged, you lower your risk of oxidation because you lower the oxygen present in that environment. But a lot of your fresh and your frozen type products are not in an oxygen free environment. And so yes, you may slow down some of those chemical processes in a colder environment, but it doesn't mean that you eliminate that. The oxidation and those chemical reactions are still going to occur because you're using permeable films um, and there's just oxygen naturally present throughout that formulation process. Um, And so anytime you've got fat and oxygen present, you're going to start seeing that reaction occur. And so it is important as we look at these new formats to really rein in and, and hone what is the right antioxidant to use Um, and even thinking, you know, we don't use wet or we don't use antioxidants very commonly in wet products, which makes sense. It's a lower oxygen environment, Um, but you can see color. I mean, when you think of a tray of pet food, the very top layer is exposed to some oxygen and it's not a, oh, it's rancid, but you can start seeing that color even oxidize in a wet type format. Um, and so, oxidate or antioxidants can play a role in, in more than just your um, round and brown kibble formulations um, because you're going to see these chemical processes in all of these different formats we see in pet food.
2: Yeah, and there's a lot of changes in molecular structure biochemistry during the commercial sterilization as well. We see a lot of protein carbon transformation and mm-hmm. those glycation products. So, there are changes going on, even though they may you not know, initiate the same oxidation as you see the dry there are changes there that maybe they're going to have an impact on animal health as well mm-hmm. so with uh, talk a little bit about the quality of those uh, pet foods if you have a product that's highly oxidized what we may see in the nutritional composition maybe vitamin e you know, is there any changes on the major nutrients that are going to have an impact later on on the animal right um, I
0: mean, there are. The the reality is if a pet actually decides to eat a rancid pet food product, um, which I think you'd be more likely to see in dogs than cats. Cats tend to be a little more finicky. But, but the reality is some dogs yeah. will eat anything. I mean, my dogs will eat anything. And so if you're feeding a pet a highly oxidized diet, you're going to start seeing some of that health and wellness and nutritional impact. Um, in the product, you know, one of you mentioned one of them. Um, there's some really good studies There's actually a really good study out there that was published in 2003 that showed puppies that were fed a highly oxidized diet um, Had lower levels of serum vitamin E and so that vitamin E is, is lower in the pet um, and that leads to to the the oxidation oxidative stress of that pet Um, They don't have the antioxidant like vitamin E present in their serum to help combat that oxidative stress um, that can be harmful to their bodies. Um, When you start seeing increased oxidative stress, you're going to see inflammation. You're going to see the immunity of that animal to be more prone um, to to diseases. And so that's one aspect. Um, The other is you're going to see a loss of the polyunsaturated fatty acids. Like you're taking those fatty acids, that are beneficial in the animal, and you're breaking them apart into these compounds. So you're not going to see the circulating levels of those um, those fatty acids that are essential to the animal's health. Um, and you know, one of the the biggest things that you see when you see these these rancid diets is just lack of weight gain. Like you're going to see weight gain problems in those pets. Um, and so, you know, ultimately, all of that could lead to extreme cases of things like liver damage and and decreased liver function over time. Um, so, yeah, the the nutrient loss is there. And then there's, because of that, the health and wellness impacts that you can see in the pet if they actually consume these oxidized diets.
2: Yeah, and I think there's a lot of us to have to understand about how those oxidized compounds that affect the health. Uh, There is some research with um, pigs showing that oxidized oil actually decreased tryptophan levels because it's getting more tryptophan to produce NAD, which is necessary for an enzyme to detoxify the aldehydes. So we even go beyond why we think about oxidation, which is more on the fat, but it can be on the amino acid metabolism. So maybe you're feeding a lower protein diet for some reason or more limiting one amino acid, and you may impact overall ability of providing that amino acid in the right amounts for our dog so there's a lot of research doing this area as well too
0: there are i mean we spend so much time making sure that our diets meet your afco guidelines for those nutrients and you know something like oxidation derails that and so you may not have those um levels of nutrients at 12 months of shelf life if you've not protected your product um with, with the right measures um during formulation
2: yeah and we formulate and we get a software you're formulating but you're formulating for 12 months as you said so maybe you are targeting those compounds but if anything happens on the way on the shelf life you may not have those so uh it's very complex and as you said that's one of the complexities of the food industry and formulating those complete and balanced diets for over time for that extended period of shelf life right yeah so we talk a little bit about antioxidants. Um, there is any rule of thumb or how can someone understand what is the best antioxidant for my diet, what they have to look into, how they, how do they decide uh, this aspect to make sure they're preserving the nutrients and they're not having an impact on animal health?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's about really looking at the fatty acid profile of your products. Um, and looking at the other nutrients, looking at your packaging format. Um, you know, as we mentioned, if you have a nitrogen flushed package that reduces the amount of oxygen, you probably can get away with a lower level of antioxidants, um, except for the fact that consumers eventually open those bags and then you have oxygen that, that comes in. Um, but, you know, your, 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 your profile of your product, your packaging format, and your de- desired shelf life all impact the application level that you should have of antioxidant into your product. And so it'd be great if there was just a little of thumb, you should always apply 3000 ppm of, you know, mixed tocopherols into your product. But it's really, it, it's not that simple. Um, but you know, we, we have great ways. you know, we can do um, predictive models with things like oxygen bomb testing to let you know what's the predicted Stability of your product, which can then give you guidance of how much antioxidant you should apply. Um, I'm a huge fan of accelerated shelf life studies. Um, it, it's very proven in literature that that's a way to get quick results. You can do, um, you know, testing of your, your prototype formulation to see if you've got that inclusion level correct. Um, so that, so yeah, you make sure you're applying the right level of, of antioxidant into that formulation. And then I'm a huge fan of routine checking of your formulations because, you know, things may change in your raw materials and at this application rate, you had your 24 month shelf life, but something changes in the industry. And so making sure you're doing spot checks on the, the oxidation um, the rancidity level of your, your product is important um, on a routine basis.
2: Yeah, no, that's very important too. And I think one aspect of the end of the the, the pet food or the consumer is how the, how the owners are going to store their food, how they're going to feed. So we need to do some education there as well. They may buy a huge bag of, Cat food for cat. I'm talking about cats because I have one. I don't like to buy those big ones because otherwise I'm going to open them. I'm going to expose oxygen, and I maybe it, there's going to be oxidation going on there. Uh, so educating consumers on how to store pet food as well. And I think with this changing label, we're going to start start to moving towards more education and making them making uh, helping them making the good decisions for their pets and how to store pet food. Yeah, I agree.
0: Because as a pet food company, you can control everything as much as you possibly can. But if your pet parent decides to store an open bag of their kibble in their garage on a hundred degree day, there's probably going to be some excessive oxidation occurring. So then the dog or cat may not eat that product. And then it's the pet food company's fault. And so... Yeah, um, that, that's not really fair. So I think it's a combination of getting your recipe as buttoned up as you can, but then making sure consumers do understand what's the best way to store the product once they take it home.
2: Yeah, otherwise they're going to be conducting those extended shelf life studies on their <laughs> on their home, basically. <laughs> they store in those hot days, you know, high oxygen environment. But, yeah, but that's, again, is a part of the pet food industry. We have to understand how they're feeding and how, they, how that's going to impact uh, cats. Okay. Well so you talk a little bit about how can cats are more finicky. Um, so they're going to be more prone to kind of detect those oxidized or unsaturated products compared to dogs, or how have you seen this changing or affecting palatability?
0: Yeah, I mean, so, you know, as we mentioned, as we were talking about the oxidation process, the the end product of this oxidation are those volatile compounds that create that off flavor and, and off aroma, uh, and I'm super sensitive. I can pick up a bag of peanuts and taste or acidity so quickly, um, and we find that cats tend to pick up on that a little quicker as well. Um, dogs, you know, often are less picky eaters. And so they may be more willing to consume a slightly rancid product, um, than, than what you might see in cats. And, you know, the thing that, that is a challenge, um, one of the reasons I get really concerned about palatability in relation to oxidation is, is part of what I mentioned earlier, if, if your dogs or cats quit eating the pet food product, that's how you lose customers. Um, they're gonna say, you know what, this brand, my dog won't eat it, and they're gonna switch brands. And so um, even before you get to the pet health impact, um, you want to make sure you're protecting products from oxidation to make sure you don't lose consumers because the pet is rejecting the product. Um, The other thing that concerns me is when our pets, if, if they don't switch brands, if they don't automatically say, nope, you're not meeting my needs, pet food brand, they may get creative on how to get their pets to eat the pet food product. So they may start adding, you know, their own chicken broth or all these other ingredients, which aren't always great for pets. Um, You know, most of them aren't harmful, but they're impacting that nutritional profile. So, you know, your consumer starts adding chicken broth because their dog won't eat the kibble. Maybe they're getting too much sodium then. And so, even from that aspect, the the palatability challenges can cause consumers to do crazy things that then also impact that pet's health. And so um, it's just not simple when it comes to oxidation.
2: Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And I think palatability is a major component of the human-animal bond. We like our pets, we love our pets, and feeding them is a way to Consumers how they see it, providing love, so they want to see their pets enjoying their meal, and I think that's a huge part as well. And palatability plays a major role, and not only on the uh, on the consumer or marketing or making sure they buy again, but they want to see the pet love loving their diet or eating it. So it's really important for that aspect as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we talk a little bit about antioxidants, and consumers are trying to move away from synthetic sources. We usually use a lot of rosemary or vitamin aldeutropherose. Is there any other new antioxidant or natural compounds that you think they're playing a role or they have potential to act as antioxidants in pet foods?
0: Yeah, I think there's a lot more work to be done in just this botanical space. Um, We've seen, you know, your rosemary um, and your green tea type extracts that do a, a great job from an antioxidant standpoint. I think there's a lot more navigation into that botanical space that we're going to see in the, in the coming years, um, both because those compounds have antioxidant properties, then they're also really label friendly. So how do you continue making things very approachable on a, on a pet food label? And if I'm drinking it in my tea at home, I, it's got to be good for my pet is kind of how consumers think of things. Um, and then I, I get really hung up on this chelator this aspect, too, because it goes back to the idea of how do we prevent the initiation process? And so I think we're going to see antioxidant producers continue to get creative on the chelator side with things like pomegranate um, that may help with, with some of that aspect of the antioxidant. Still really label friendly. Um, and offer some of that um, kind of secondary protection that you can see in formulation.
2: And do you think is there any benefits of those antioxidants, not only on the the quality of the pet food, but on the animal? So if I increase the level of antioxidants, this is going to have a metabolic effect on the animal as well?
0: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. We know some of those extracts, like green tea, can have a metabolic impact. Um, what you have to start considering is what is the application level in the pet food that truly gets you to that metabolic benefit versus it being a soft claim. Because you could use your your green tea antioxidants now at the uh, 2,000 ppm you're probably not getting that metabolic impact at that level. And so um, you're definitely going to see some of those health and wellness ben- benefits with, with some of these these extracts and, and botanical compounds. It's going to be about finding that sweet spot where you're getting oxidation protection and you actually see the benefits in the pet.
2: Yeah, finding the ideal doses is the challenge part. And when you talk about botanicals and all those compounds is very little amounts and just a little bit more can have an impact or even a detrimental impact. So it's probably a, not a, a linear response, it's a more curvilinear. And finding that sweet spot is probably very challenging, but lots of work to those two in, a, in this arena.
0: Hey, that's why we have jobs. It helps us find all the sweet spots for our customers, though. So.
2: Yeah, I know. That's awesome.
1: It's time for our famous three.
2: Well, thank you very much, Melissa, for joining us today. I think... Um, we are almost done with this uh, podcast episode, but before we are done, I would like to ask you some final questions. Awesome. So the first one is you've been in this place for a long time and you said you really love the pet food industry. What do you like most about being in this industry?
0: Um, it's honestly the people, um, which is, is weird because I'm sure there's great people in every industry that exists out there. Um, But, but I love the network of people in academia, people in marketing, you know, people across the industry that have this passion for serving pets. Um, And, you know, I, I know my dogs, they're part of the family. They're, they're not just a dog. When I grew up, dogs were dogs. They were the outside farm dogs. But the reality is. Pets have become such a vital part of our lives and such a huge impact to our mental health and our just overall happiness. Um, And I love to work in an industry that serves that and in an industry with people who are so passionate about serving that. Um, You know, it's, it's so far from where my roots were in production agriculture, but these companion animals are truly so important to our livelihood. And I just love getting to be a part of that.
2: Yeah, I totally agree. And I think the, the passion is something that we can really see in the pet food industry. People are really passionate about it and they care about their pets. And as you said, it's not only nutrition, there is an engineering, there is the marketing, there is the, you know, all those areas that they combine and they try to, you know, provide the same goal, which is at the end of the day is providing a healthy pet food that is going to be beneficial for the pet and to strength of our human animal bond that is really strong and over the years it's just going to increase and increase. The other question that I want to ask you is, you are a successful person in the pet food industry. Uh, what uh, is a common trait that you have observed in successful people over your career? I think it's really about being
0: inquisitive. Um, the, the people that I've seen be the most successful are the ones that just continue to ask why and what's next. Um, so I, somebody once told me to be happy but never satisfied and I, I love that quote because we can be happy with you know, our current products and the, the current pet food industry, but really what's going to continue to progress us and allow you to progress in your career is to not be satisfied with that, to have that inquisitive nature to say, I want to see a little bit more research on this. And I have this research question and I want to see how this plays out. Um, and so, those people who are just continual learners and want to um, challenge the status quo—you're you, going to see people be successful. And it's not going to just make individuals successful. That's what makes companies and in our industry successful. And so, we just need more of those those people who are inquisitive and want to say, "What's next? How are we going to keep progressing?"
2: Yeah, that's. I 100% agree with that. And I think that, as you said, what moves the industry forward? All those questions, and it comes with a lot of failure and tentatives, but those failures is actually what, again, is moving things forward and answering those questions and making us think about next questions. I would say one research project, we, we learn one thing, and then we learn that we do not know 10 others, and then we have 10 other questions to answer. So keeping asking those questions opened the doors for other ones that we never thought existed.
0: Yep. Inclusive and resilient because you're right. You don't yeah. always get the answers you want and you have to be able to go back to the drawing board sometimes.
2: So Yeah. So at some point you're going to get the answer. You're, you know, some answer, but it may take some time more than you expected for sure. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Melissa, for joining us today. It was great talking with you about oxidation. Uh, I hope you can get you back and thank you again for sharing your knowledge. I'm sure your audience and myself will really appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you so much. Have a great day.